podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have here in studio with us, Ruth and Leanna. Hello. Hello, everyone. And um, some very special guests of ours, John and Raluca Tirlea. Hey, hey. Hello. We are so excited to have you guys with us. Well, you guys are good friends of the podcast, I will say. <laughs> Ruth and Leanna, you guys have known, how long have you guys known each other? Well, they don't remember me from as long as we've known each other, but... <laughs> Essentially for at least 20 years. But. Wow. <laughs> we had this conversation last night and it was hilarious. He's like, no, but we hung out before I got married. I was like, we did. <laughs> no, I remember John when we, 2014, I think mm. it was the first time that I remember you and Raluca. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, uh, we did some short term mission trips and stuff together. So back in 2014 and that's when we officially became closer friends. Yeah, and then you guys are part of, or used to be part of our church. I like to say we're still part of the church. We're just sent out by your church. You're sent out. I I apologize for that. Yes, you are special members, special missionary members, actually, because this is what you guys do. You guys are full-time missionaries on the ground and as of right now in Greece. So before we go more into that, I just want to like give the introduction over to you guys. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves, who you are, what your passions are. How did you guys meet? Who you are, what you do. <laughs> yeah, who, what, where, and why. Like, just <laughs> ladies first. Uh, I'm Araluca from Bucharest. Uh, got married to John, moved here in Michigan, and then we started uh, doing ministry together. John from Detroit, Michigan, born and raised. Um, but uh, my parents are, yeah, they moved in, in the year before I was born to Michigan from uh, Romania. So first born in the country, and then I decided to go to Bible college back in Romania, where I met my wife uh, in 2010. And um, that's where, you know, I think God clarified the calling for both of us, you know, where he wanted us to be and what he wanted us to do. And since 2010, we've been working as as much as we can to get to Afghanistan, to work with Afghans and uh, to share the gospel with them and, and to help them in any way that we can. And since 2017, we've been in Greece doing that. 2017, it's been a while now. Yeah. I remember when we first sent you guys out. Yeah. Not many people do because there was a snowstorm and like the church was empty. <laughs> It was, it was a great send off yeah, from our sunny climate. Yeah, it was uh, you know, Michigan snowstorm, December, like white out everywhere, foot of snow, more falling in like an hour. So So you guys both went to Romania. I mean, you guys both went to Bible college in Romania. Were you guys first interested in doing missions right away, or were you just looking to get a general, you know, Bible college degree? Um, I actually was in missions before that, and then God told me to go to the school. I was really confused in that period about why, but then things clarified. <laughs> uh, but I think it started for me in high school where I started wondering, okay, what am I going to do with my life? What do I want to be? What college do I want to follow? So asking these questions and praying, the Lord told me, go to so- do social work and then missions will follow. So 
uh, in my first vacation, in my first year of college, I started going into short-term missions. And then that really confirmed to me that I was called to that. After finishing my college, went to India for about seven months and a half wow. between India and Nepal. And then I went to college, uh, to the mission school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for her, the mission school was kind of like an interloper because... Um, mm-hmm. She wanted to go back to Nepal or India and kind of was seeking the Lord. And, and so she ended up in at the Bible college. For me, I felt like God had called me to do something in ministry. And I never really thought that I was like made for missions and being born and raised in America. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't have an interest to leave America. And like every time I traveled outside of the country, I was kind of... Like, yeah, America's great. Um, and so, <laughs> Love so, that AC. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, central heating and everything. So, you know, so I felt like God put it on my heart to go to Afghanistan for a short-term trip. And, and it didn't work out. And in the, you know, intervening time, I went to the Bible college just to get a little bit more of an understanding of missions. The school is kind of tuned to training people to share the gospel with mm-hmm. Muslims. And so... Oh, feel free to share the name of the school and the organization. In Romanian, it's uh, Centru de Studi Transcultural, which is the Romanian Center for Transcultural Studies. Uh, and it's a biblical school with a focus on missions, practical and uh, theological, and then also with a heavier focus on Islam and, and Islamic studies. So uh, 2010, I went there kind of on a, you know exploratory trip, and that's where I met my wife. And when we first started dating, like I think the first serious discussion we had was like, okay, I like you. I think you like me. I think this little, you know, might develop into something. I'm not interested in dating. I'm interested in finding a wife. Mm-hmm. And with that, I feel like God's calling me to go to Afghanistan. So if you feel called to India and I feel called to Afghanistan, I don't want to pursue a relationship oh, and wow. cause a conflict in, in, you know, direction. And I also don't think that it's the healthiest to say, you know, the wife will, I'll follow you wherever you go. Because so often I've seen families that are broken because, the husband goes and the wife just follows but doesn't want to be there mm-hmm. and feels torn and, and feels like she's yeah. suffering under that and like unfulfilled. And Afghanistan is a hard place for guys, let alone for women. It's even more difficult. And so I didn't want her to be in that position. It's like you're either called or you're not. You know, she prayed about it. She did a research study and, and felt like God was calling her there as well. And that kind of started our relationship. How were you inspired for Afghanistan initially? Because you said, I felt God called me to Afghanistan. It was actually listening to another worker from that country sharing about a need and it was a short-term need and I felt like I had the skill set and experience that could fulfill that. I also felt like I could get away with being there even though I don't speak the language because I looked enough like them. (laughs) For reference, John can grow a really great beard. (laughs) Yes, I miss that beard. Um, And so, yeah, so I I thought, you know, it was a short-term thing. I mean, short-term in in my mind is six months or less, and it was a six-month thing. And and I was like, you know, I I could put six months of my life aside for this. But then at the school, I realized that God has given me the ability to adapt really efficiently in different mm. places. My wife calls me a chameleon, but like, it's also in the sense of I, I get into a, a, a new country, a new scenario, and I feel like this is home. I feel like, wow. you know, if they're living this way, so can I. And, and I feel very little frustration or angst in being in new locations. And I also uh, deeply enjoy meeting people from other cultures and, and learning about them and discussing with them and, and sharing about what Christ has done you know, in my life and what Christ could do for them. And so, yeah, it was it was a confirmation that took place at that school that was something that I didn't have. Like, I didn't have a certainty when I went there that I was going to be a missionary. Again, 
up until like the first couple of weeks, I was like, yeah, this might be a short-term thing. This might be, you know, I'll do this schooling, finish so it's a two-year program, and then go to a theological seminary and, and, and get a degree in, in theology. But then like after the first couple of weeks, I was like, okay, something different. And then uh, I felt like during the schooling process, I felt like it was a confirmation that this is what God wants for my life. Raluca, I guess we'd volley that question over to you, especially because you were first interested in India and Nepal transitioning to Afghanistan. I know it's right next door, but it is a pretty different culture. What convinced you and what did, how did Holy Spirit speak to you? So when I was in India, I never thought about working with, um, with Muslim populations because in my mind, I had this kind of skewed view about as a woman working with Muslim, I felt that you can't get in there, you're not going to be able to do anything and all of that. But when I started dating him, I was very at peace with the relationship. But the question was, okay, am I cold to India or am I going to go to Afghanistan? It was really unclear. And then doing a project, like he said, where I studied Afghanistan, um, saw the need there, and I talked to missionaries from the country and told me uh, what they are able to do and what's the need there. And it really hit me when I realized, as a woman, what you can do and the big need that actually Afghanistan has. There's no churches. There's there's few people that actually get involved with Afghans because it's hard to work with them. It's a very tough ground there. And I always, in India and Nepal, I always thought, yeah, I'm useful, but there's churches here. There's already people working here. I, I'm a person who likes to work where the work wasn't done yet. Uh, where it's truly a need. Yeah. So uh, when I started uh, reading about Afghanistan, I was like, that's where I want to go because wow. that's where the need is. So that's what really drawn mm -hmm. me in, into the uh, working with Afghans. And when we went after school to do our practice, our internship there, it really was a confirmation for me. It was like, yeah, I love this place. I feel at home here, which is really weird because you're very restricted as a woman there. <laughs> What did your work involve, like with women, when you went on that first internship? It's not much that you can do at the beginning um, because they they're not gonna let you go and evangelize people. That's very dangerous. We it was more of a vision trip where we were there. We helped the missionaries that were there in whatever they needed, like office work or moving mm -hmm. stuff or doing stuff like that. Yeah, it was just. Um seeing what was taking place yeah. there, what the needs are, what the opportunities are, ways that we could get involved, mm -hmm. and if there's an actual need for us as, you know, workers and our skill set. And it was it was more of a walking alongside of the workers that are mm -hmm. already there, just kind of seeing what's taking place, not actually doing anything practical because mm -hmm. the environment isn't as such. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a place mm -hmm. where you just go and like yeah. gather a bunch of people and share. There's a few places I want to take the conversation. I think eventually I want us to talk about the cultural aspects, like differences, like what makes Afghani special? How are they different from, let's say, other people that you could be ministering to or Romanians or Americans? But I also want us to talk about how your journey took you, you know, coming back to the States after Bible college, then to Greece, then to the current work you guys are doing. Being that she's Romanian and I'm American, we didn't have a similar citizenship or passport. And that makes traveling internationally mm -hmm. very difficult, very complicated. It's complicated as it is 
typically, you know, and so uh, we decided to come back to America uh, to get her citizenship. Three and a half years later, she she received her citizenship. Um, but at that time, there wasn't an open door to go to Afghanistan. There were some security risks and threats and things that were taking mm-hmm. place. And so we're in a season of prayer and asking the Lord, hey, where do you want us to go? Like, what's going on? Do you want us to continue to hold on to this thing of Afghanistan or find a different path. And so 2014 in December is when she received her citizenship. And we continued to look all the way until 2016 when we went on a, actually it was a vacation to Greece and we met some colleagues and and previous um, students, alumni of the school that were in Greece working with Afghans. And we were able to see the work that they were doing and the potential of work because Mm -hmm. like so many of the ministries were undeveloped and still in the, the development phase. And when we went there, we saw all the opportunity. We saw the people, the needs there, the, the lives that they were li- living. And I think God, again, touched our heart and just said, this is where we, I want you. And, you know, after the first night that we were there, we, we got back together and we were just like talking about all the different opportunities and how we feel like, you know, this is where God wants us. And so it was a um, very quick uh, decision-making process. And, you know, I felt a, a sense of urgency on like getting back there because the refugees are traveling a lot. It's not a stable situation. I said, all right, God, you, you have this sense of urgency on my heart. Like our decisions made pretty quickly. Then is are we going to get there pretty quick? And, and for some reason, God was like, yeah, six months. And sure enough, like almost to the day, six months later, we left America. And then it, we went, we went in, into Greece proper uh, two months later. So wow. it was like most most often it takes like a year or two or something to, to be able to get to that point. And so we saw that like God was putting it on our heart and then confirming things and, and kind of preparing the path for us to be able to execute his will. And, and so that's how we ended up in Greece. Can you paint a bit of a picture for those who aren't aware of what was happening in Greece at that point in time? Can you do a quick overview of what was going on? So basically in 2015, there was a massive influx of refugees, especially from Turkey going into Europe. And the primary uh, group was Syrians. And then you had some Afghans, you had some Turkey, uh, sorry, some Iranians, you had uh, some Libyans and some Africans as well. But it was just uh, a a massive influx of refugees. And most of them were trying to go into inner Europe. So Germany, France, Italy, places like that. Their their goal was not Greece. There's a day, a couple of days in October of 2015, when over 10,000 refugees in that day arrived. So there were close to a million people in that year, refugees that transferred in 2015. So 2016, they, March or May, they closed down the borders. And so now you have this massive group of people that were expecting to just transverse the country. And, and most of them were there for 24 to 48 hours. They'd land into, you know, in a city, they'd like walk across the border or on a boat or something. They would get to the mainland, uh, whether it was Athens or, or Thessaloniki or some other city. Um, they'd sleep overnight and then they'd get up on foot again and, and leave the country. And uh, the ministry at that time was uh, gather them together, give them a meal, allow them to take a shower, you know, maybe share the gospel with them, give them a track or, or micro SD card. They can listen to the gospel on their phone or something and, and, and they would leave and, and you wouldn't see them again. So there was like this huge turnover, quick uh, pace of, of people coming. And then in, when they shut down the border, you had people that were stuck and they didn't want to be there. And even to this day, I think over 99% of the refugees that we meet don't want to be in Greece. Wow. So like out of the tens of thousands that I've met personally, I've only known like three or four that are like, I feel like God's telling me to stay and have persisted in that mindset. 
So, okay, you have a large group of people and they're stuck kind of against their will uh, in a country and they have to find a place to live. And there's uh, an abandoned airport at the edge of Athens that we went to visit. And there's buildings that are abandoned and like um, a stadium type of structure and, and people were sleeping in tents wherever they could pop up a tent. So like on the boardwalks, on the under the overhangs or pitching tents, like on concrete and stuff. And so wherever they could find enough space for their tent, they were staying there. And so you had tens of thousands of people in like small spaces, just sleeping on top of each other. And all of those facilities had like four bathrooms for women and like four bathrooms for men wow. and like no showers and no running waters because it was like an abandoned facility. And they were there for... I think almost a year. I think yeah. we were there in May and then they finally shut it down. Uh, so that probably popped up in March and they finally shut it down like the following March or May. And so so that was like a really... The government wasn't uh, prepared and had no uh, ability to take care of all the refugees. So yeah, until and- all the other organizations came in and started building uh, camps for them. Well, the camps are actually developed by the, um, by, the, by the government. The camps are actually government-owned properties or like closed-down military bases that they refitted to be uh, refugee camps. So, the, but the, the but other like ministries the, were the helping, helping to facilitate with food and everything. Other, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the decision to close the border was not Greece's. That was the European Union's mm-hmm. decision. So, you know, Greece not being prepared for that, it's not like they were just like not paying attention. It was it was a decision that was made by the European Union and the Greeks, then Greece just had to kind of deal with the consequences of that. Um, so that was 2016 and and you kind of see that ripple effect going down all the way until last year where people are against their will in Greece, wanting to leave, waiting for their paperwork, waiting for whatever they can get to be able to leave the country legally or, or, or not, or like they get a travel document and then go on and then reapply for asylum in other countries where they had, you know, desired to be originally. And, you know, people were stuck for two, three, four years in Greece, not wanting to be there. And it was a perfect time for us to be there because they have no work, they have nothing to do. So it, it's a good time for you to go and work with them because yeah. they're in transit, they don't have work. Um, Their needs just, are infinite. Like yes. There's nothing that you could say that is being met as a need. Mm-hmm. They don't have language classes because Greece's intent was never to like absorb integrate that them. many and integrate them. And so they're not providing language classes. So we were to be able to allow them to find work or to be able to find something to do. And then ESL classes in case they were going to travel to multiple countries so that they have a common language, food and, and washing of clothing and, and you know clothing as well. And then also something to do, some activities or training or education because um, living a stagnant lifestyle and, and not reading, yeah. not growing, not being challenged through work and discipline can can really hurt an individual and, and both in their psyche and in their soul. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we were seeing a lot of that. So more than just like the gospel or more than just their physical needs, we're also satisfying some of their spiritual needs and their soul needs as an individual to do something productive with their life or to learn something new or, or to be, you know, participate in the community mm-hmm. uh, outside of, you know, being stuck in, you know, that circumstance. So then what did your day-to-day start looking like as you guys were trying to meet these needs? It was different for ours. Yeah, very different. And depending on the season, summers, we have a different schedule and then in the winters and uh, fall, spring, it's a different season. So, And the, pro- the, the organization that we were working with locally on the ground was a very diverse organization. They were mm-hmm. working with 
not just the refugees, but also Romas that were established there for a longer period of time. They're also working with Greeks and homeless Greeks. And so as being part of the team, we were also helping run different projects. And so like typically Mondays and Wednesdays would be showers and meals for the refugees. And and we'd have up to like 400 people per meal come in and we serve the meals. And then, you know, we'd have a couple of dozen, maybe a hundred people come in and take showers each of those days. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays were for the homeless Greek people at the same center because we weren't able to do that. And so there was a bunch of different organizations serving the needs of the refugees that were there. And so like one of the statements that so many people, would, workers would say would be, the only reason why you'd go hungry in Athens is because of laziness. <laughs> so, wow. so there was so much food being provided, so many different ministries providing all of these services. The only reason why the refugees like would not have been served was because they just didn't want to mm-hmm. leave their tent or leave their apartment or whatever. I mean, that's good to know that people did step up, like the world stepped up to help out that situation. Praise God. No, it was quite amazing to have so many different nations yeah. and communities kind of collaborating and working in, you know, from different fields working together. You guys also did the Joshua camps, I think. I Operation think you mentioned Joshua. Operation Joshua with yeah. the, like, I think the Bibles. Bible throughout. distribution in yeah. Greece. Yeah. That was a really cool project. Um, So what it was, was uh, one New Testament for every household in Greece. And, you know, at the end, they they kind of settled on reaching all of the rural areas and some of the minor cities. So places like Athens, Thessaloniki, maybe one or two others were not fully covered and not everybody in those cities received it. But they, I I believe they got to 1.75 million. So 100, 750,000 Bibles distributed in the past uh, 13 years, or was it now 14 years total? Around there. So yeah. this year was the last year that they they ran it, and, and they did 175,000 this year alone. That's amazing. Yeah, so it was a really cool project. Uh, a lot of volunteers, people from you know South Africa, from Australia, from Europe, from America. Like It was a global Everywhere, effort, yeah. people coming together, and, and you know Romanians and stuff. I met some really cool people from Romania kind of participating in that project as well, and so... It was a really cool initiative. Remember you talking about it, I'm like, I want to go there and do that. <laughs> yeah, COVID kind of got in the way of a lot of things, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. But in terms of your day-to-day, like the like Rafi asked, how has your involvement evolved from like five years ago to now? What progress have you seen in your ministries in terms of what ministries did you build Oh, I had so many different schedules throughout these six years and a half. Um, I've been involved with uh, kids ministry at the beginning and as a English teacher for about a year and a half, I think. And then I started Skills Training Center, which was a program for women uh, to learn a trade that would bring income in their house. And also in uh, bef- before every class, uh, we would have Bible classes. So in 2000, beginning of 2019, I started that and... Uh, Pretty much my schedule was like, prepare for class, have classes with the ladies. Um, and it was in our house. So then it was clean up after the class. At the beginning, it was in class. our house. <laughs> yeah. And we live in like a two-bedroom apartment. And so like in our dining room was the sewing machines and our living room was a child care service. And <laughs> at one point, it got, it got to like the kitchen, hallway, the, in the hallway, there were the kids. In the living room and the dining and the kitchen, there were sewing machines. It was just a chaos. It. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was awesome. But it was awesome. I loved that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For reference, you mentioned uh, we had a meal right before this, and you were saying the education level of the Afghani women. Can you, can you go into that? 
Because of the Taliban era and because of their Muslim uh, background, a lot of the, the ladies are pretty, they're illiterate. They were in a school where they have like five classes around there. There are very few ladies that we met that have uh, high school or it was only one lady that had some college uh, education. Yeah, because of the Taliban, they weren't allowed to go to school, so... So essentially, when you were training them in these skills, this was actually really vital and important to them yes. to help them bring mm -hmm. income in for their families. It's very hard for them even to learn a new language because they their brain is not used to learning for oh, so many yeah. years. Wow. But they, as a nation, they do have, I think it's built into them, the uh, handcrafts. Um, mm -hmm. They love to sew, they love to knit. Uh, they're Overworking very good at it that. also. So it, it was just surprising to see them. They were barely reading when we were reading the Bible, but when they would put their hands and start sewing it was like wow that's beautiful they were really creative uh, yeah. picking up the new techniques really fast and coming up with ways mm -hmm. to to make the product yeah. better so no they were they were learning the skills really quickly and a lot of them had already done something like that at their house and we were you know i mean what they would be learning would be some maybe some new skills or new approaches and one of the parts of the class was they would receive especially because of covid they would receive a sewing machine at home so they could practice And some of the ladies from the beginning were like repairing and tailoring people's clothes wow. for like a buck here or a buck there, mm -hmm. you know. And so mm -hmm. they were already making money fr from the beginning of class. And some of the ladies actually got hired into a, an actual business for making, you know, custom wow. bags God. and clothes and stuff. And they would get um, a certificate at the end where we we show that they did classes and they were able to use in other countries. It's very fulfilling to see that you actually give them an income you change their lives yeah. pretty much afterwards so uh, it was very fulfilling wow that's amazing yeah no she the the class was actually really impactful and she did it like on you know 50 bucks a month type thing oh, <laughs> like, <wow>. yeah <laughs> she did it on like the most meager of, of salaries and and one of the points of the class as well was everything that they made you know we would go and and you know, share the ministry and people would want to donate and we would do an exchange of like, here, receive a bag if you if you donate. And she would keep track of all the bags and all the money that was donated. And then it would be uh, divvied up according to the people that made those. So mm -hmm. if That's a lady amazing. made five bags, she would get the money's worth. And mm -hmm. so um, during the class, they were able to make some money. And, you know, that we had like a, a process where it was like, a bag would be, let's say $25. And we would say 16 would go to the student, nine would go to buying the material because that would be the equivalent of cost to labor and and none of it would go to the actual running of the ministry like it would just be the materials to make the next bag and so then there was this way of kind of keeping the just ministry keep going and yeah. keeping it running while also providing them with an income mm -hmm. from the work that from learning you know while they're learning wow that's amazing so you combined managed to combine the spiritual formation aspect right because you're doing the bible classes yeah. but mm -hmm. with something very practical that can that would have a big impact yeah. on the community yeah. and on the family Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was wonderful, and it was, it was. And we developed. We started with sewing, and then we went to uh, wood burning, and the wood burning class actually turned into an arts and crafts uh, class, and then we added the uh, soap making class. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it was like it was also a therapy for the ladies as yes. well, because so yes. many of the ladies were like, you know, I don't want to do any of the class that I just want to sit in here and listen and stuff and. One of the ladies, <laughs> they weren't allowed because of COVID. They weren't, and you know, God forgive us for, yeah. But anyways, <laughs> uh, so the, the, because of the because of the quarantines, the ladies weren't allowed to leave the the camps, and so a lady like jumped the fence, 
you know, got on a bus, came to Athens, went to class, and it was her birthday. And <gasps> oh. she's like, I want to spend my birthday with you guys. And it was the first. Wow. So my wife had baked her something or bought a cake. No, I, I just bought. ran out. And yeah, <laughs> knowing that because she didn't expect anybody to yeah. come because of the restrictions and like anybody from outside of Athens. So then um, when the lady showed up, it went out and bought her a cake and she was saying that that was her first birthday cake. Yeah, she started crying. <laughs> yeah, so like testimony after testimony, how like they're impacted by the presence of being there. So yeah. you know. we, we wanted to create an atmosphere where they would feel safe, where they can come and relax. And um, everything in the class was towards that. The way mm-hmm. the class was organized, the way they would come and they would be received and uh, the way we celebrated birthdays and their uh, holiday, our holiday, every we found uh, ways to, to make it into a celebration, to make it oh into my. this place where they can come and have a bit of joy because mm. we saw them. They would, sometimes they would come with like red eyes at, in the class mm. or they would come and they would cry all the time and they were like, okay, we're not doing class today. We're doing counseling sessions. <laughs> but... It was it was yeah. a very I mean these women time. and men went through some unimaginable traumas to get oh, yeah. to where they were. So we can't we can't even imagine what they must have been through. Yeah. And the toll that it took on them and their families. Mm-hmm. So some of them I was hearing their stories and I was looking at them and I'm like, How are you sane? Wow. <laughs> uh, uh just yeah. I think I think um the one la- the lady with her kid, how she was holding her child. You want to share about that? So where um, her husband had tracked her down from city to oh, city. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a soul podcast. You guys want to you know, have well, some yeah, pain yeah. in your soul? You soul. want, you want some pain? Because it. yes. this is like, this is heart-wrenching. Oh, no. It's like, you know, as a guy, I cry whenever I hear it. So like it's... Yeah, the lady um, came to our class. She was illiterate. Uh, she She couldn't read or write. And when she came, she was in angst like you could tell she was we spent a lot of time talking to her and we found out that um she was trying to get uh the children of her sister and her mom out of afghanistan in a safe place in iran some colleagues with some uh, friends from afghanistan we managed to do that to help her in that during this we found a backstory um her dad wanted to sell her and her sister to this older gentleman to get married to him. The mom knew that the older gentleman was a very abusive man and took the girls and ran with them um, in a different city. The guy tracked them down, the old guy tracked them down, managed to capture her sister, married with her. She managed to escape, got married, had a kid, but he didn't forget her. So at one point, not sure how they found her, but he shot the car where she was in, killed the baby in her arms. arms. She's missing a finger. She has like her whole leg is full of uh, like holes and stuff. Not holes, wounds Wounds. that are sealed up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She, she, She survived, managed to escape. With her husband, uh, left to to Iran, and then she managed to stay in Iran for a while. And then when she got to Greece, her sister was, she was so abused by her, the older gentleman. She had two kids with him, and she just, she had it all, and she wanted to leave him. He found out and killed her. Oh, man. So this is where we found her. 
her trying to mm. get the kids from him mm-hmm. with the with her mom to run to Iran and escape. So wow. The the story is really like it turned out really good afterwards. The mom escaped, like I said, they're in Turkey right now. She and her family moved to Germany right now and she learned how to sew. She had a job before leaving Greece and um she went to one of our Christian camps and when she came back she said I was not happy but now I found peace and happiness. She didn't oh, declare that she found Jesus yet but we we think she was a changed person mm-hmm. from the moment she came and when she left Greece. You could tell on her face and her mm-hmm. countenance that she was very close to mm-hmm. taking that step. <laughs> yeah. Wow. How did you guys even begin to like minister to her? I, I I'm just trying to think like where do you even begin to speak into her life or things like that? And I know that it's probably something so different than I even think or imagine. But I honestly I don't even know like. Like a lot of times I'm just praying while I'm listening. I'm just praying. I'm like, Lord, what do I tell to them? Because their stories are so traumatic. It's like, how do yeah. I, you know? And it's a lot of times it's just listening and praying for them. And yeah, asking them, do you want me to pray? You know, and that's about it. And it, it just that shoulder for them to yes. cry on and that ear to hear, um, it, it makes a lot. Well, I think in the book The Insanity of God, it talks about that where Dan Ripkin, he was saying when he Nick Ripkin. Do- Nick Ripkin, thank you. <laughs> when he would go and do interviews, people just want to tell him things and that was like therapy for them. Like he would sit for 14 hours doing interviews. I mean, you guys know it because you everybody in this room read it. But it's the same idea where people are very comforted by being heard. I think being heard that like really yeah. Because yeah. I don't think a lot of people process their stuff. There's a lot of cultures that don't deal with their stuff. So one of the uh, projects that we're currently collaborating with another ministry on is um, trauma care. And it's like a first aid to trauma. And there is a certain risk to digging up old wounds or mm-hmm. digging up wounds. Mm-hmm. And it's like pulling a scab. And if you don't put ointment and if you don't put bandage on, you're leaving that scab exposed and that's going to hurt. And even the air is going to hurt it. And, and you're doing that to the spirit, to the heart. And so there's a certain danger in, in asking people to share where they start opening up, but then it's left as a gaping wound. And they've actually had that happen to them where people would come in and, and do some trauma care with them and start to open the wounds, but wouldn't help them to process it. Wouldn't oh. put the ointment, wouldn't help put the bandage. And and there's a certain process that um, when you're trained to do it, I don't, I'm not trained to do it. I, my wife had done some counseling and, and, you know, those people that are trained engaging in, in traumatic experiences know how to continue the process to a point where it's not healed, but it's bandaged. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, they were in Turkey, you know, working with some people and, and Afghans. And one of the ways that you start to open up the, the damaged, you know, flesh and open up the damaged areas is through drawing. And you, you draw what you experience or you remember what you're feeling. And, and when you were in the situation, draw something, anything. And, and that kind of opens it up. But then you talk about it and you kind of process through it. Well, they, none of them wanted to do it. They're like, no, last time we did this, it hurt too much and it still hurts. And and they didn't want to go through that process. And so they kind of had to come up with another methodology and process. And um, by the end of the class, multiple people were saying, we felt love here for the first time. 
we felt the love of Christ and we know that it is Christ's love. Mm -hmm. And old men from Afghanistan and like from the 50s and 60s, you know, down into their 30s and 20s were crying through the process, like kind of processing through that because, you know, crying is a way to kind of alleviate some of that pain. And they were vulnerable enough to actually do that with other men in the room, Mm -hmm. in a group setting with men and women. They were showing their vulnerability, their weakness which is like a, a big no-no in the in that mm-hmm. culture to show your weakness to a woman, especially, and then other men. You know the shame that they would, but rather than rather than you know operate out of fear, they went through that process and they left that class after only a week, saying, "Okay, we understand what love is," and they're able to kind of start to make progress and move forward. And so I, I believe that my wife, whether it was supernaturally or through the training that she had. I believe that the environment that she created helped the ladies to kind of go through that, you know, and and so whether it was intentional or not, there was that process wasn't just to like, hey, tell me your story and then walk away like, yeah, I'll listen to you for six hours, 10 hours and then walk away with the person kind of left holding that damaged, you know, experience, not knowing what to do with it. And so I, I do think that it is important that if people do engage with listening to other people and and with talking to other people to do so with a, a certain level of wisdom. Like personally, I avoid kind of getting into those conversations because I kind of have this, not macho-ness, but my mindset is like either on one side is to over-associate with their suffering, which can be unhealthy because you're drawing them deeper into their suffering to become bitter and angry against the men who have violated these women or other sons and stuff and, and to become enraged which is also unhealthy because that's not helping them process and so like i know that i don't have the skill set to to go through that and to to sit and help people kind of heal and so i i enter very slowly into those discussions and into those uh, relationships because i know my limitations and i think it's really important for people to kind of understand that and and you know there's a certain point where the holy spirit i think guides us but there's also uh, some training that's involved i was gonna ask so with the men how do you build that trust that you Mm -hmm. know because i'm guessing even just romanian men have a harder time like you know just opening up or doing stuff but how did you get through that with them or to even approach the subject of christianity or approach the subject because i know that's very taboo with any sort of muslim culture or anything like that so how did you guys start those you know relationships with the guys i'll say that we had a little bit of um an easier situation compared to um, what you would have in the West. What I mean by that is that when they would look at us as, you know, Westerners, they would assume that we're Christian. So, okay, now they're entering into the discussion with a Christian person. And then the second part is that being in Athens, they're in a safer environment where they're able to ask questions without feeling the risk of being persecuted by the people around them. So it's like, well, I have to talk to him because he's serving a meal and he's helping us with food and clothing and with like our other needs. So I have to talk to him. But then in that discussion, they can ask questions. So it's easier to enter into conversation with those parameters set up. Like here in America, nobody knows if you're a Christian or Buddhist or Hindu or maybe by the, you know, the color of your skin or complexion or like your nationality, they can assume or, you know, if you're Sikh, you have the turban on or something. So like there's certain indicators, but... More often than not, it's hard to tell, you know, one white American from another who's Christian, who's not. Mm-hmm. But in their mind, if you're white, if you're Westerner, you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of expecting the question of Jesus and stuff. So my approach typically was not to get too quickly into the discussion about Jesus. 
as much as to get into their life and ask them about, hey, who are you? You know, like, what's your name? What's your family's name? What, you know, what was your job in, in Afghanistan? What was your life like? Tell me a little bit about your experience and something about yourself and drive, uh, I think, more of a friendly relationship. And I, and I would say that most people that work with uh, Middle Eastern cultures take the approach of social and friendly engagement, and then through that friendship to be able to get to the question of the gospel. And then, you know, you can feel that the person is interested in discussing about Jesus, about faith, about God, and then you can share. And it's like, hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, have you ever thought about God in this way? Have you ever thought about Jesus in this way? Have you ever thought about God as a righteous God who expects righteousness, a holy God, a a God who expects us to obey him? And, And ask these questions like have you ever thought about god as a relational god have you ever thought that god might want to know you and talk to you and like actually created you for a purpose and and drive the conversation that way so then in their mind it's not just like jesus or hell like repent or like it's tell me about yourself and open the mind to the discussion about who jesus is and and what he's done for us both on this earth and healing our wounds and our suffering and showing us love, but then also in heaven, because our hope is not for this earth, but our hope is for eternity, for the next life to be with God forever and, and the salvation that we have you know, from condemnation. And so that's how I would get into those type of discussions with them and even about their own life. By asking them those things, it would, it would feel like we're friends and then they would be able to open up to me you know, rather quickly and, and actually ask questions. What would you say the difficulties are with working with Afghans in particular? It depends on what your purpose is. So if your purpose is to evangelize, which I think can be a very unhealthy purpose. And the reason I say that is if your purpose is to evangelize, typically what you're doing is you're you're ignoring that as people, as yeah, as people, we are also triune in a sense. Like we have our physical nature, we have our spiritual nature, we have our our soul. And all of those have needs. And so if, you're, if your purpose is to evangelize, you're, you, there's a, a strong likelihood that you're going to ignore those other things. And so you're not helping the person holistically. And they can feel that. They recognize that. And they're actually anticipating that. They're like, oh, you're going to come here. You're going to tell me about Jesus. You're going to tell me about, like, I need to change. I need to change my, my lifestyle, change my behavior, change who I am, change my identity. But you actually don't care about me. You don't care about my physical needs. You don't care about my soul. You don't care about my suffering. For me, the purpose is to know a person, to know their spirit, know their soul, know their suffering, know their needs, and then also to share that which I have a solution for. Okay, your soul, your your need for creativity, your need for a purpose, your need for learning, your need for growth, your need for making a difference. Like, here, let's solve that. Okay, your need for health and food and the physical needs, clothing. Okay, let's solve that somehow. Let's try and help there. And then now your spiritual need. Okay, so you you're, you need that because you're going to hell and, and you're going to suffer and you're separated from God. You don't have a relationship with the creator and the one who knows all things and wants the best for you. You don't have a relationship with him. Like It would be like saying like there's a, a billionaire sitting at, at your front door saying like, hey, let's go hang out. Like I want to buy you your house and your car so that you don't have to work another day in your life and like put something in your retirement fund. And you're like, yeah, I don't want to have a relationship with you. And the guy's like, there's no catch. <laughs> like, I'm just going to do this for you. And you're like, no, nah, I'm good. Thank you. I want to suffer. Well, yeah, oftentimes because of our fear, we're not going to want to engage in that. And so they have a big fear. The Afghans have a really big fear because they associate religion with their identity as an Afghan. 
I'm an mm. Afghan, therefore I'm a Muslim. And so many nations do that. And, you know, when we were in Romania, part of our internship work every single weekend was to go and, and work with some of the Muslims locally. And, and they were Turkish. And there was one village that I went to. It was... 100% Turkish community. They would even Turk and Turkish. Their Romanian was worse than mine, and mine is pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, they were like, yeah, we have one one Romanian in this community. And it was another Turkish guy who had watched the Jesus film and said that he enjoyed it and he loves Jesus. <gasps> oh, and they're wow. like, no, he's Romanian. <laughs> like, just because he loved Jesus, he's no oh, longer wow. a Muslim. He's no longer a Turk. Wow. And so that mindset was so ingrained that your identity and your community is based off of your religion that you couldn't be a Christian Afghan. Mm -hmm. It's just like unheard Doesn't of. Exist. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's, I think, the hardest part is saying, no, you can be a, a, a better Afghan Amen. by your relationship with the God Amen. who created your culture. Mm -hmm. And you can remain in your culture. And maybe, you know, there's some aspects of the culture that have become culture that are, are probably not. So women being viewed as property or, or women being mistreated and abused. And I don't think there's a, a single person, Afghan that I've met that said that they understood love the way that we Westerners even experience it. Not even Christians. I'm talking about Westerners where your dad is telling you he loves you or your mom is telling mm, you wow. or your friends are like calling you up on your birthday. Like all these different aspects that we have. The lady never had a birthday. She was in her 30s. Mm. Like so many of these people have never heard an encouraging word, you know, and so they've never they've never experienced any level of love or care or tenderness and and at least in the way that we westerners would understand love and care and tenderness are there any love languages that afghanis have though i'm just wondering or is there any way that they express it like i know look ethnic moms make a lot of food but they won't ever you know i want to say sarcastically obedience <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> like 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 if the child obe obeys the mom he loves her if the mom if the mm -hmm. wife obeys the husband that shows love god is well, that love makes is, sense you mm -hmm. know so like there's no god is not love there's no idea of that concept within the their culture or their religion i was gonna say i think that that's maybe why they can't understand the god of the bible because their concept well, of god is so different I, I know I've like I've had Muslim friends and it's like, oh, we serve the same God. And I was like, but it's not the same at all. So I think maybe I don't know, this is me just listening to you. But when you say God, when you say Jesus, when you say love, that's not how they perceive a God. Yes. At all. Yes. So it's like, how do you change that perspective when you're talking to them? Because that might that's hard. Yeah. I think, again, another advantage that we have as opposed to other uh, locations. And, and in my mind, I'm not being idealistic or anything, but. Greece was one of the most unique and most efficient places to share the gospel. And and part of the reason was, as I shared before, another reason was it was one of their first interactions with Westerners that was not skewed or marred by the context. So if you're in Turkey, you're not allowed to evangelize. They shun and frown on Christians being there, and they shun and frown on Afghans, so it's a really tough thing. So, so in Greece, they're able to interact with Christians for the first time in their life in a, in a neutral territory or pro-Christian territory. So, so many of them were telling me that it is the love that I experienced from Christians when I came to the country that first got me to ask a question wow. about what's different about you than us. The question they posed and they somebody articulated it to me was, we know that our suffering and our fear and all that we have gone through is caused by other people who call themselves Muslims. Hmm. Not atheists, not anything else. And so our own religion and our own people has caused all of our suffering and you, Christians, who, and especially Americans, because, you know, Iran calls us the big Satan, mm. and, you know, Jerusalem, the little Satan. 
we are their enemy and yet we are welcoming them with open arms and love with no precondition. Like we serve them a meal, there's no money, there's no transaction involved, there's nothing. It's like, here you go, goodbye. Mm. And yes, we share the gospel when they're there. Yes, we, we show them the love of Christ. Yes, we speak about Christ. But there's no precondition that they should respond or they should do anything else so that we don't yeah. force anything into their hands. They know what they're coming for. And yes, we share the gospel, but it's just pure love. Amen. And that experience, that interaction with the love that God puts in us that now we can share with them, that causes in their mind uh, a question to be formed. So what is what is that? What is what is that hug? What is that smile? What is that welcoming that is waiting for us that we're receiving without due merit? And what is that that we're running from? And then we can say, hey, this is the love of Christ that transforms us, that puts in our heart love for you, even though Al-Qaeda that bombed the trade towers, they were hosted in Afghanistan. And so, and uh, the U.S. Army was over there. And, and somehow you guys are supposed to be our enemy, not supposed to be loving us and receiving us. Like what's going on here? So the actions of love helps kind of engage into that conversation. It's like, look, I grew up and I was in eighth grade when the towers were attacked and I was ready to join the army then, you know, and so it's like I was ready to go to war. And it's the love of Christ that said, no, don't fight, don't shoot, don't go and attack, don't look with fear, don't look with hatred, don't look with despise, but look with love and receive with love. Okay. And and then it's like that was me, that was my experience. And then they then they're like, Okay, so what really happened? What really took place? And mm-hmm. then you share about the the love of Christ and 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 so on. Man, I feel like that's a word for the hour, you know, for this moment, because it's so easy to demonize others. And then not even, we're not just even talking about missions context, we're talking about in the world we live in right now, it's so easy to look at somebody else as an enemy, but Christ never called us to do that. Mm. Christ called us to love our enemies, right? Mm. And through that, we show the gospel story. So I think that's just so amazing. Praise God for that. Yeah, praise God. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) 